Access Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, ER docs get their pay cut and the next big streaming service launches. But first, America's other economic crisis. Now, if it weren't for the coronavirus pandemic that has basically shut down the country, a lot of headlines right now would be about oil and specifically how the U.S. oil industry, the one that President Trump regularly touts for its massive production and jobs growth, is in crisis. The short story, too much supply, too little demand, leading to such a severe drop in oil prices that it has arguably become unprofitable to dig new wells. But it's also a geopolitical story, as pricing has been put under added pressure by an ongoing feud between Saudi Arabia and Russia that has yet to be resolved, despite Trump's tweeted suggestions last week that it was. And plus, add to all that, the deepening coronavirus pandemic, because that has taken gas-guzzling planes out of the sky and cars and trucks off the roads. In short, America's energy boom, its biggest economic story of the past decade, it's at risk of fizzling with an untold number of jobs and state tax revenues at risk. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Energy reporters Amy Harder and Ben Geeman. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We are joined now by Axios Energy reporters Amy Harder and Ben Geeman. Amy, let's start here. Even before the coronavirus started causing, you know, massive lack of demand for oil because fewer planes were flying and fewer cars were driving, there was already this kind of Saudi-Russia price war. Can you just explain just real quick what was happening outside of coronavirus to oil? Well, the industry's stocks and financial standings have been pretty bad for quite some time. For the last year or more, the industry has been struggling financially, precisely because there's been this persistent oversupply problem. And that is due mainly due to the great explosion of production in oil and natural gas from the United States. So there's been this oversupply problem for years. And then right as the coronavirus was starting to hit, right before that, but that's when the Saudis and Russians embarked on this price war. Why did they do that? What's the kind of the nub of the issue between the Russians and the Saudis? Well, it's all about market share, right? So the United States oil production has come in and taken a huge chunk of the market share. And since 2014, during the last price drop, that's when the Saudis and the Russians formed, you know, what's known today as OPEC+. And so things were going along all right, until this last month when the Saudis wanted the Russians to come to the table to make even more cuts due to the pending demand drop off coming from the coronavirus. But the Russians balked and then everything fell apart. And then the Saudis promised to ramp up production. And that's pretty much where we are today. Ben, let's look at how this plays out domestically a little bit. You know, you're already hearing talk of oil companies asking basically for a federal bailout like other industries have gotten. Is there any progress on that? Is there a reason to expect that U.S. oil companies are going to get federal bailouts outside of being able to apply for the loans that everyone else can apply for? Well, that's one option. That's right. So Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said that oil companies would be able to try and access some of these lending facilities that are being set up via the Federal Reserve. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to second something that Amy just said, which is that this is really a historic and unprecedented situation, right? So already, you know, starting early this year, you had prices start to really start come down as the coronavirus expanded and really started to 
you know, stymie production initially, a lot of air travel. But then, of course, with the increasing economic lockdowns, you had all sorts of other restrictions. And then what happened was, you know, wind the clock back a bit to early March as the Russians and Saudis realized that they should probably try and have some type of even expanded production cutting agreements. Their effort to do that in early March kind of collapsed because they couldn't come to any sort of agreement. Certainly the Russians were resisting wanting to do as much as the Saudis were. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that the Russians don't need as high an oil price as the Saudis do for their domestic budgetary needs. And so now we've got this historic double whammy, primarily the demand loss from coronavirus, right? You know, some analysts are estimating that we're now seeing in the near term a demand oil consumption, you know, a drop in oil demand of about 30 to 35 million barrels per day. President Trump last week tweeted that it seemed like maybe there was a solution that he had kind of uh, negotiated with Russia and the Saudis and tweeted about that. Is there any meat to that bone or, or was that just wishful thinking by the president? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So what is clear is that the Russians and the Saudis are essentially starting to blink a little bit, right? So there's going to be in the over the next few days what's in a meeting of this collaboration's three-year-old alliance known as OPEC Plus, which is Saudi OPEC, you know, led by the Saudis, Russia, and some scattered other producers. So it does look like they want to come together around some type of production cutting agreement. Now, President Trump had claimed that based on his conversations with the leaders of President Putin of Russia and MBS of Saudi Arabia, that it was going to be on the order of 10 to 15 million barrels per day worth of cutting. There has not been confirmation around that. Now that said. There is discussion of a you know a much deeper cut than they had been doing before until everything collapsed in early March. There's a little bit of a quandary here, right? Because the U.S. is now the biggest producer in the world, and the Russians and the Saudis want the U.S. to cut as well. However, the U.S. does not have the kind of top-down command and control system that those economies do, right? So nobody can just flip a switch and tell U.S. oil companies to cut their production, you know, at least not at the federal level. At the same time, there would be some really antitrust problems if the companies sort of got together and created their own little mini cartel amongst themselves. That said, whether actively or passively, we are going to see U.S. production cuts. Prices have cratered so much beyond the point of financial viability for a lot of the independent producers that because prices are so low, because demand is collapsing, and candidly, just because of some very logistical, physical constraints on where to put all this oil, U.S. production will start to fall. So I think perhaps there's an opening for some type of wider agreement that's not just the Russians and the Saudis, with the U.S. kind of in a nod and a wink way, effectively agreeing to a production cut, even though we don't quite put it that way, you know, again, because it's largely going to happen anyway. Amy, for President Trump, who's been talking really since the beginning of his administration about his love of low gas prices, is this kind of where the chickens are coming home to roost? Because he can't really have it both ways, right? If you want low gas prices, that means you have low oil prices, but he's got a crashing industry that he keeps touting as this wonderful industry. How does he reconcile those two things, or can he? Yeah, this was the topic of my column today, all about Trump's evolution on oil and natural gas prices. So I've talked with people close and familiar with the president's thinking on this, and they say that he's never really had sympathy for the oil companies. Now, he's used incredible growth in oil and gas production as part of his agenda, but he doesn't have sympathy for them. He says things like, oh, they have enough money. So in this last month, and you can see it if you look at his comments, and in my column, I document his evolution. He's really begun to realize that, oh, there is such a thing as too low. And people in the industry are telling him that, you know, hundreds of thousands of industry workers are going to be laid off. And because the industry is so much bigger than it was a decade ago, that could have a real hit on the economy. But even still, every time, even today, when he talks about it, you can still hear him praising low gasoline prices. And I think that this is important because that's how most Americans view the oil industry. They like when prices are low and then otherwise they don't pay attention. Finally, for Amy and Ben, one word answer. It's a yes or no 
are we going to see a slew of U.S. oil company bankruptcies? Amy. Yes. Ben. Yes. Axios is Amy Harder and Ben Geeman. Thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is ProPublica report that certain medical staffing companies are cutting pay and hours, including for emergency room workers. Why it matters is twofold. For starters, it is counterproductive to public health and insulting to those putting their lives on the line. But from a broader business perspective, it also reflects the immense strain that the entire medical services industry is under, as elective procedures and appointments have been all but canceled, because it's those sorts of procedures and appointments where hospitals and clinics make most of their money. In short, it is an already upside-down system turned upside-down again. And finally, today is the launch of Quibi, the new streaming video service that has raised a whopping $1.8 billion from venture capitalists. Now, if you don't know Quibi, or if you saw its Super Bowl ad but were understandably confused, it was launched more than a year ago by former Disney and DreamWorks boss Jeffrey Katzenberg and former Hewlett Packard and eBay CEO Meg Whitman. The idea is to produce original, short-form content for viewing on phones, not on TVs or laptops. Now, there were always questions whether or not people People would want to pay for yet another subscription streaming service, but now those have been overwhelmed by the current coronavirus moment, since Quibi appears to be aimed at commuters who are now stuck at home. So don't be surprised if Quibi's top shows at launch aren't the ones with the mega movie stars, but instead the newsier programs, albeit ones that are now being shot at reporters' homes instead of in fancy studios. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Caramel Popcorn Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.